Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The PR case precedes the legal case. It's not a coup, just like emoluments isn't a fake part of the Constitution. What we've seen under President Trump is a massive hollowing out of some of the vital parts of the U.S. foreign policy bureaucracy. There was indeed uh, what Fiona Hill said, a parallel foreign policy process which had at its aim not the U.S. national security, but rather this sort of political errand. We also see the ask of an antagonistic state to intervene into how American elections are perceived was not just limited to Ukraine, but also to China, who is designated by the president's own national security strategy as a chief geopolitical and geoeconomic rival. The military is nonpartisan. The intelligence community is nonpartisan. Yes, I think you see the politicization of the military, which is really harmful. They're the armed servants of a democratically elected government. They cannot ever be seen to be a Praetorian Guard. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And today we are going to be looking at the impeachment inquiry into President Trump and his doings regard US foreign policy towards Ukraine. And we are going to be asking what does the president's peculiar brand of foreign policy mean for US allies and US relations the world over? To have this discussion in the studio today, we have Dr. Garana Gergic and Dr. Charles E. Dell from the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, my alma mater. Dr. Garana Gergic is a jointly appointed lecturer at the Department of Government and International Relations and the United States Study Centre. In 2018-2019, Garana was a visiting scholar at the Harvard Minder de Gunsberg Centre for European Studies. Garana's research interests include US foreign policy, transatlantic relations, conflict resolution and democratisation, and she is the author of Ethnic Conflict in Asymmetric Federations. Dr. Charles E. Dell is a senior fellow and visiting scholar at the United States Study Centre. Prior to this appointment, he was associate professor of strategy and policy at the US Naval War College and served on the US Secretary of State's policy planning staff from 2015 to 2017. In that role, he advised Secretary of State John Kerry on political and security issues in the Asia-Pacific region 
now the Indo-Pacific region. Indeed. He is also the author of The Lessons of Tragedy, Statecraft and World Order that came out this year. And I believe that we are already in discussions with you to get you back into the studio, Charles, to discuss this book, maybe with my co-host, Catherine Manstead, who I know has a great interest in what you've written. So thanks very much for coming into the studio today on the National Security Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us on today, Chris. You've just put out a paper literally in the last couple of days. Uh, it has the title Impeachment and Insider's Guide. The US system and its constitution can seem a little bit arcane to those not from the United States. Could you give us a brief outline of what impeachment is and why it exists and maybe even a little bit of the basic pro- uh, process? Absolutely, Chris. Uh, So first, just uh, the point of the paper. So this is an unusual paper because what we actually did and the reason why it's subtitled An Insider's Guide is because at the U.S. Study Center up at the University of Sydney, the whole point of the center's existence is to analyze America. We have a series of experts uh, who come from all walks, academy, uh, the policy realm, uh, in order to provide insights for Australia. So what we decided to do was as impeachment comes to the fore in America, as it begins to dominate the daily, the hourly, the minute-by-minute tweets, no less, newspaper headlines, we thought it would be an interesting uh, perspective to step back, uh, not give an argument necessarily, but rather to get some of the expertise that we have at the center. So we actually have five different authors uh, taking a look at impeachment from a number of different angles because we thought this might actually help illuminate which what, as you said, is a bit of an arcane, hard-to-understand process. So we have everything from the history to the foreign policy implications, which Garana has written on, to what the poll numbers say now, to where the politics might go next. So that's the point of this paper. And again, everyone has their own vantage point, but we thought bundling them together might add some real value here to the discussion. All right, on to your question about what the heck is impeachment. Uh, Impeachment is an ancient ancient, uh, practice uh, which originated in England about getting rid of corrupt royal officials. Uh, The idea, the intent made it across the Atlantic uh, to the new American colonies. But after the American Revolution, they had to redo this concept uh, because it excluded the king. So now there had to be a mechanism for holding the chief executive to task, but not so constraining him that he couldn't actually be a sufficiently powerful executive. So the debates around the Constitutional Convention spend a lot of time thinking, what is this and ought we to constrain and to what degree should the president be constrained? And the answer uh, that the Constitution's framers came up with was a series of checks and balances between the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, regular elections, and as a last resort, impeachment, whereby the president of the United States could be removed before the term of his or her, it's only been a his thus far, office ended if a sufficient number of members of Congress first and then the Senate thought that he had acted in a way that impinged on the democratic integrity of the United States and imperiled its national security. So that's what it is and meant to be. There's a whole legal mechanism which we can get into as well, but it is a process embedded in the law, the foundational law of the United States, whereby the president of the United States can be removed from office prior to the completion of his term. Now, just for anyone who has been living under a rock or has just arrived on the planet recently, could you go through what is driving this current process and and why it has been kicked off by the Democrats? 
Yeah, so we obviously have to understand the context of U.S. foreign policy towards Ukraine uh, for over the past five years since we've seen basically uh, this uh war in in East uh, Ukraine. Uh, So since uh, 2014, uh, which basically uh, has Russia's uh, involvement in uh, supporting the uh, rebel, the Russian speaking rebels uh, in the Donbas region. So obviously, we know that during the Obama administration, there was a lot of uh, concerted effort to somehow uh, aid Ukraine in trying to resist uh, this uh, resurgence of, of Russian influence in its east. Um, however, uh, that didn't necessarily include uh, lethal uh, military aid to Ukraine. Uh, this is something that was actually changed under the Trump administration. And uh, we what we've seen is actually a bit of a, a change in terms of the, the rhetorical versus policy mismatch uh, where President Trump has seemingly in his rhetoric been uh, cozying up to Vladimir Putin, while at the same time, the congressional pressures have really made uh, U.S. Uh, take a much more assertive stance. And this is how the, the context of military aid provision to Ukraine comes about. And basically, uh, where we get to this whole story of the congressionally approved nearly $400 million uh, of aid that was supposed to uh, be be uh, given and rolled out uh, sometime uh, mid uh, this year. But basically uh, it stopped uh, at uh, the direction of the White House. So the the story goes, and this is how we get to the July 25th uh, phone call between President Trump and the recently elected president of Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. So in this infamous phone call, President Trump, according to this, uh, it's not quite a transcript, but basically it's a transcribed kind of uh, um, conversation. We don't have the audio. Memorandum of events. Exactly, if I get it that has been redacted and approved by the White House. So you know, um, there there are a lot of speculations as well as to what might have been omitted or to what extent those that were on the phone call were able to record everything that's there. But nonetheless, there is this infamous part of the phone call uh, where President Trump says to President Zelensky, uh, "We'd like uh, we'd like you to do us a favor, and that favor would be to uh, start investigations." Uh, into uh, Burisma, into the Bidens, specifically Hunter Biden, the son of former Vice President uh, Joe Biden, who was sitting on the board of this uh, gas company in Ukraine. And at the same time, we know that basically uh, the the way that the storyline develops in this sort of parallel foreign policy process that has emerged is that essentially this uh, freezing of the aid to Ukraine is tied to those investigations. Um, now, just sorry to interrupt you again. It, it, I find it quite interesting in that memorandum of events that was put in, into the super secret server so no one could find it. And we are told that there are certain parts of that that have been redacted uh, that has come up in the testimony in the inquiry. If they've redacted parts that are so sensitive, why didn't they redact the part that asked, do us a favor? Isn't that the sensitive part of the discussion that you think that they would have redacted in the first place? 
Well, this is obviously uh, what many are pointing to being as the part of this smoking gun in a sense that this is essentially that evidence of the quid pro quo as we've come to know it and that the, the administration has been doing these sort of verbal saltos and, and doing kind of walkbacks and, and then pushing that, you know, well, even if there was quid pro quo, there was nothing wrong with that. The aid was ultimately unfrozen. It went through. So, you know, nothing to see there. Keep on keep uh, calm and kind of keep on walking on. It's, um, it, it's almost like that they feel if we put this out in the public and we admit it, people are going to think there's nothing wrong with it. Well, we are at this sort of point where um, I think the the things that we have seen coming from this White House, uh, you know, we keep on having this discussion. Uh, what will it take um, to to really shock us and, and to surprise us, right? Have we all been uh, almost desensitized to some of these things that are coming out? And probably in the minds of, you know, the, the kind of uh, those that were uh, privy to the, the, the phone call and making the decision then to release the, the memo, uh, maybe this sort of, uh, you know, uh, seemingly innocuous statement uh, was was uh, not as bad in their minds as uh, now it's playing out to be. But I would say that uh, certainly some of the um, testimonies and the depositions that we've heard during these public hearings, which basically are now occurring as part of the formal impeachment uh, inquiry, uh, have really been corroborating uh, the, the the storyline that there was indeed uh, what Fiona Hill said a parallel foreign policy process which had at its same not the U.S. national security but rather this sort of political errand and that is basically why the the congressionally sanctioned aid was frozen and why it was tied to the pursuit of something that would ultimately benefit President Trump politically rather than the U.S. interest as a whole, and that is basically the deterrence of Russia. So there seems to be two issues here for me. There's the uh, possible contravention of the emoluments clause in in the Constitution as well, because Trump is looking to receive something of value that will help his campaign in 2020. I thought that was the direction the impeachment hearing was going in the first place, but it is, is seemingly shift towards a claim of bribery. And I wonder if this has to do with the issue in the Constitution where they talk about uh, high crimes and misdemeanours. Now, Charles, can you pick that apart a little bit for us? Because this is going to be one of the main areas that I think that the Republican defence is going to rest upon, as in there's no proof of any kind of statutory crime or, or a breach of the Constitution. And in their interpretation of the Constitution, it must be an actual crime. There can't be uh, anything that is a threat to American national security that doesn't represent a crime. That is indeed one of the arguments, one of the defenses that you might hear. It's also patently false. So let me unpack that. Uh, so in the US Constitution, because they didn't want to make impeachment available for anything, uh, for partisan disagreement, for policy uh, divergence, because then you would have a president who is wholly subservient to the Congress. So they decided that it, they need to limit and narrow the scope of what actually constituted an impeachable offense. So it was, as you've already outlined, Chris, uh, an impeachable offense in the US Constitution is limited to treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. And what's interesting is if you begin to look at the constitutional debates, you can get a little bit more than simply those words. So first of all, the first question that they debated 
was, do you even need to have impeachment? Isn't regular elections a sufficient check? And that view was definitively discarded. Uh, it was not and a need to serve as a safeguard against what they saw as the potential to one day in the future have not George Washington, have someone who is wholly corrupt and would put their personal interests above the interests of the nation. Now, in the Constitution, treason is defined. Not in the Constitution, bribery is defined, but is a fairly simplistic and straightforward legalistic definition, very similar to what you just laid out for emoluments clause, uh, seeking to gain personal advantage. Uh, and extort something from someone else. Now, that third phrase, though, has been more ambiguous, other high crimes and misdemeanors. And it was taken from the British practice, and it was specifically, if you look at the original debates, intended to be an insert there because treason and bribery, they didn't think were sufficiently broad enough to cover anything that might do harm to the state, undermines national security, undermine the integrity of its democratic processes. So it's very clear from the get-go that an impeachable offense did not have to be a crime at all. Uh, furthermore, a crime might not rise to the level of an impeachable offense if it was deemed insufficiently harmful uh, to the functioning of the state. And we can see evidence in that in how the Senate adjudicated Bill Clinton's impeachment back in 1998. Um, a crime, lying, absolutely, potentially obstruction of justice as well. Uh, but that was not what the Senate adjudicated on. Other high crimes and misdemeanors, again, were acts that were thought to either constitute an egregious abuse of power, an imperiling of national security, or a betrayal of the national trust. Admittedly, all three of those terms are ambiguous and expansive. But also, the bar is set so high for not only impeaching someone but removing a president from office. It's never happened in 230 plus years of history that this is not something that would be whipped out willy-nilly. So it's true what you have said. It will ultimately rest on, I would say, in a broader sense, what public opinion but eventually what the 100 U.S. senators who will try the case decide is what they deem inappropriate political behavior that has harmed the state. Now, is, is it cynical of me to think that the only thing that's actually going to sway the vast majority of those senators is the public opinion? Is the strategy that the Democrats are going to play on, are they going to try and undermine the, the president's popularity and turn the electorates against him to force the senators to vote to remove the president? Uh, so a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, one is, I don't think it's cynical. Uh, to say that popular opinion plays a role. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and in fact, uh, I already laid out in the case of Bill Clinton, of course, uh, that he did commit crimes. They were not deemed to have harmed the state, but because the impeachment of Bill Clinton was seen and was understood as such a highly partisan event, Bill Clinton's popularity actually rose during the impeachment proceedings to his high 73%. Now, that does not make removal from office impossible, but it makes it very politically unlikely. Uh, similarly, if we kind of roll back the clock and look at Richard Nixon's uh, instance, now he was not impeached because he resigned before articles of impeachment were voted out on the floor of the House of Representatives. However, you know, Nixon, a pretty good politician, was rather prescient that several months before it got to his resignation, he said the PR case precedes the legal case. And he's absolutely right because as more and more 
compelling evidence emerged, uh, televised uh, evidence and testimony, um, and the, of course the tapes. When his support collapsed, it did so with astonishing rapidity. And it was only about a one to two day break where he was informed that he probably, uh, by his Republican colleagues in the Senate, that they wouldn't have the votes to not only stop impeachment in the House, but to acquit him. Who, who, who controlled the House and the Senate? Uh, House was controlled uh, by the Democrats. Uh, and the Senate was, I believe, also controlled uh, by the Dems. But you need a supermajority uh, to remove. To vote articles of impeachment, you only need 50 percent or 50 point whatever, right? Uh, so whoever controls the lower house can vote articles of in- impeachment. But in order to re- – and that's akin to – sorry, I didn't say this at the top – an indictment, right? But then you have to have the trial. And the trial, both judge and jury are the Senate. 100 senators. And to remove a president, you don't need a majority. You need two-thirds or higher. That is a very, very high bar. uh, And it means that it is virtually impossible for that bar to be hit if you don't gain some bipartisan support because neither party has a supermajority. Just in terms of the public opinion polls, I think it's really interesting to note that the numbers, the support uh, on on both sides, the Democratic and Republican side, have been have been faring quite steadily, I think. And this is one of the things we are seeing now in, in uh, every single week with, with the new polls. Essentially, the Democrats are remaining somewhere around uh, high 70s, low 80s in terms of support for impeachment. Republicans are there in the kind of low double digits around kind of uh, low teens. And then you have uh, the independent support, which is uh, definitely well under 50%. And then um, when we look at it kind of uh, as a whole, the electorate is somewhere around 50% for and against. So it's far from settled. And now in terms of chasing these voters and, and kind of making this case, I think the problem that we have is, first of all, we are increasingly talking about a system that's largely polarized, where the middle is largely hollowed out. So who are these sort of mythical, you know, voters in the middle? That's number one. Uh, Number two, they are consuming news. And we might touch on that a bit later as well. But the fact that the media landscape is essentially divided into tribes that see the world completely differently, kind of parallel universes there. And finally, Finally, something that we shouldn't discount is that uh, Donald Trump is still way more popular than many of these senators and uh, representatives. So they are really looking at the president, not necessarily uh, just at the electorate. So as long as the president and that's one of the things that's really the starkest out of all the, the polls that have been coming out is that his support hasn't budged. So he's constantly around somewhere around 40 percent. That's the base that he has, that he hasn't lost. And those people, uh, it will be really hard to see what it would take uh, for them to to really uh, turn their back uh, on, on the president. So um, in, in terms of the, the kind of public piece of the 
the whole puzzle, um, it's really um, hard to see where what what sort of change uh, there would have to be in terms of the way that the case develops, what sort of other corroborating evidence on top of what we've heard from the likes of, you know, former Ukraine ambassador Mary Ivanovich, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Windman, National Security Official Fiona Hill, some of those people who have really had these damning testimonies uh, and still it has not made the mark. Quite the contrary, actually, some of these hearings have been uh, largely dismissed by the likes of Fox News that have started questioning some of those people's uh, loyalty to the United States, given that they are uh, of immigrant background. And this is quite indicative of where we are at in terms of the the kind of tribalism um, in the polity. So just before we move through to the national security uh, element, just one very quick question. I'm confident in thinking that you don't believe that this is a coup, correct? Absolutely not. It's part of the Constitution. It was why it was written in in the first place. It's frankly because it impeachment in general, not talking about the specific case, levels such a grave charge. It really is the gravest of political charges. It was intended to be both political and public, not done in secret. And so what you were seeing play out in the testimonies, uh, have evidence being presented. Uh, this is not a coup. This is the deliberation of whether or not a president of the United States undermine the national security and the functioning of the democratic processes. Uh, so I fundamentally don't think that. Though there's one other point here that I think is really important to stress uh, about the ancient history, about where impeachment comes from. And actually, uh, if you excuse me as I go on a historical rant. Please uh, do. Uh, the reason why it's different from the original British conception was in the British conception, first of all, it didn't relate to the chief executive. I laid that out, right, just to royal officials. But second of all, they could be punished up to and including by death. And when they transferred the process to America, they decided that one, it needed to be relevant to the chief executive, to the president, because we don't have a king. But second, they did not want it to be a punishment, a punishable offense. Uh, so the president is not able to be prosecuted while he is in office, right? In, in fact, in the Constitution, it says that he can be prosecuted after he leaves office, but not while he is in office. So the reason that impeachment is there is not to punish the individual, but to remove an individual who congressmen and the country writ large, acting through the representatives, deem a sufficiently high threat to the country and who they believe, if left in office, would do it again. That's why it's there. It's not a coup, uh, just like emoluments isn't a fake part of the Constitution, as we've heard from the president. They are written into the Constitution. That's why they're there. That doesn't prejudge what the outcome should be, but these processes are there to actually help preserve the democracy. You're reminding me of a clip that I've seen online of Senator Lindsey Graham talking about the cleansing of the office and that it doesn't have to actually be a crime to remove the president. Sentiments that he doesn't seem to particularly align with the current inquiry. We might even put a link to that on the website when we publish the podcast. Now, I'd like to move to the national security element of this issue. And my first question just has to be WTF Rudy Giuliani. There's a whole parallel, unaccountable element of foreign policy making going on here in a country that's at war. I, I don't even know what question to ask Irani. Can you, can you maybe comment on what's going on? 
So what's going on is a reflection of the abuse of the foreign policy process and the complete mismanagement of that same process that has started basically uh, on January 2017. And what I mean by this is the fact that the president, as the chief of the executive branch, holds actually quite uh, sizable powers in terms of staffing, in terms of hiring and firing, also in terms of the way that uh, he or she would basically Uh, see the inter interagency process work through uh, the coordination of the National Security Council and so on. So what we've seen under President Trump is a massive hollowing out of some of the vital parts of the U.S. foreign policy bureaucracy. I think that this has been no more evident than in the State Department, but also in, in other parts of the foreign policy bureaucracy where we've seen a number uh, of uh, important posts either having very delayed appointments or actually people just uh, uh, working in acting capacity rather than being appointed and confirmed by uh, the Senate. And basically, when you have this sort of situation where uh, you have your vital diplomatic arm uh, essentially hollowed out, either because people have left or they uh, haven't been even appointed. So President Trump has also had record figures in terms of the turnover of staff. So now, you know, in basically every single way, uh, one of those top cabinets, we've seen at least two secretaries. We, we are now to gotten to national security advisor number four, for instance. You are basically leaving a lot of space and a lot of kind of vacuum for the likes of Rudy Giuliani and his associates to insert themselves into this and throw into the mix also the fact that President Trump obviously comes into the office without any sort of executive uh, government experience. So uh, he is doing a lot of policy kind of spontaneously, to put it Uh, very euphemistically, uh, where, uh, you know, we, not only do we, do we see the sort of governance by Twitter, but really circumventing of some of the, the. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The traditional and, and you know, customary ways of uh, coordinating foreign policy. And one, one, sorry, just to interrupt you. One of, the, one of the most depressing observations that I've made, especially in conversations online with my friends from the US, is that they think that this is an example of draining the swamp. That's the picture that they've got of this sidestepping of foreign policy, that that's the swamp. Trump's doing it his way. I think this is a symptom of something that's much bigger and, and it's it's a kind of, you know, uh, a question that we might uh, tackle in a master's or a doctoral thesis and it has to do with the overall uh, record low levels of trust in uh, government in the United States and the fact that these sort of populist messages are really striking a chord with a lot of uh, the people and this is basically where, where Donald, Donald Trump has really capitalized on this sort of uh, mistrust of, of government. Um, 
and uh, you know, if you take a look again, um, the mismatch between rhetoric and then you know his actual staffing, uh, we we see that obviously uh, some of his appointees have come directly from Wall Street, from you know major gas and oil corporations, and and so on. The usual sort of suspects uh, when you when you talk about you know what the swamp might mean in terms of you know the the, the kind of evocation of people who uh, definitely have some special interests to to push uh, when they're coming into government and this whole idea of revolving door essentially between not just Wall Street, but again, uh, major kind of corporations and industries and, and the government. But coming back to this idea that basically uh, with the, the parallel foreign policy process, what we've really seen uh, is this sort of abuse of power that is I would say almost baked in uh, just by definition uh, into the role of the chief of the executive. There is a potential there for the president to abuse the office, given that in foreign policy, presidents have much more latitude because of historical precedents, because of the, again, the size of the bureaucracy that they operate or they manage, and also the fact that they are allowed to do that with a lot of secrecy. And I think that this is one of the things that the Congress clearly can't do because of it. it's a much larger body. It's much more deliberative. It has to do things uh, by by consensus in order to pass bills and so on. But this is where the chief executive has really uh, a lot of uh, ability and, and latitude actually to just go by the, the kind of accountability uh, measures that could check uh, um, his or her conduct. And I think that Basically, what we have seen in case of uh, uh, Ukraine policy is the rise of this sort of parallel channel as a result of some of these more or less institutional provisions that have been placed into the hands of someone who really had uh, some some nefarious motives to to use it for his political gain. Look, uh, what Garana has just brilliantly articulated is whether or not facts matter uh, in this universe. And there are three things I think that are really important uh, to keep in mind uh, when we're just doing the factual factual findings of the case and what's likely to be debated and adjudicated. So first is uh, the context. Uh, what's the problem here? What is the nature of the allegations? And at the bare minimum, I see three that are unfolding. So one, the president sought assistance from a foreign government for domestic political purposes, uh, a quid pro quo, if you will, uh, asking a foreign government to do the investigation of a political rival. Uh, second, withholding military aid and conditioning it on them intervening in American domestic political processes. Russia, can you hear me? Uh, right. So this is we're talking about a redo of that. And then third, and I think this is pretty critical, uh, a undermining of what Congress had appropriated, that $400 million worth of aid uh, that Garana had spoken about, for a frontline democratic state that has soldiers and citizens dying because of Russian aggressions. That is the nature of the charge. The two other things that are really important to uh, keep in mind here is you asked about uh, Rudy Giuliani WTF, uh, but we are – my guess is the nature and scope of the impeachment articles that will be drawn will probably stay narrowly focused on Ukraine and not begin to range more broadly as they could possibly do. But I guess they're going to try to keep it narrow. On Rudy Giuliani though, 
the question is not just Ukraine, but also his involvement in other areas because of all these vacancies and because of his empowerment by the president, including in Turkish policy. Uh, we also see the ask of a antagonistic state to intervene into how American elections are perceived was not just limited to Ukraine, but also to China now, potentially, we're seeing, who is designated by the president's own national security strategy as the chief geopolitical and geoeconomic rival of the United States. A third and final point here is timeline uh, is actually, I think, of great interest. Uh, because again, uh, again, not prejudicing the outcome because this does need to be debated and adjudicated. But the original intent was to think about whether or not a president would recommit another act that would be deemed harmful. And so Garan has laid out that the call in question that everyone's looking at and reading the memcon, uh, which may or may not be the actual one and has some interesting ellipses in there, was on July 25th. July 24th, the day beforehand, was Robert Mueller's testimony about the Mueller report. And of course, the president thereafter uh, on Twitter claimed that it was a complete and total exoneration. Uh, no collusion, no obstruction of justice. That's not what the report said in any way, shape, or form. However, we can see a one-to-one -one, that if you believe uh, that you are not implicated by this, you are green-lighted. So the question becomes, and you had asked earlier, uh, Chris, about why this is happening now. Nancy Pelosi had said impeachment is dead in the water back in the spring, and he wasn't worth it. So the question is what changed? And I think it's that phone call changed and moderate Democrats, uh, not firebrands, not AOC, but moderate Democrats who had won their seats in Trump districts broke from her and said, this is actually a matter of national security. And whether or not it's smart politically, if we don't do something about this, we have green-lighted this type of action in the future. So, Garana, I know you've got to catch a flight. So I really want to get, get to a couple of questions that you're going to specialize on. You were talking about uh, the situation in Ukraine and what's what's essentially driving this. But this, as we've mentioned, or as Charles has just mentioned, this is an issue in terms of national security, foreign policy, and the operations of the US government to support its national interests around the world. And in terms of Eastern Europe, given... Uh, President Trump's peculiar relationship with Russia and the possibility that he's been throwing Ukraine under the bus here for his own political purposes. What is the impact on the frontline states in Eastern Europe, such as the Baltics and Czech Republic and even Greece? Is this, is this actually having an impact in their faith in US to support uh, the Western interests against Russia's expansion and aggression in the region? Look, that's a great question. And I think one that uh, we've been posing basically, again, uh, since day, day one of Trump's presidency, because what we are left wondering and what indeed some of these allies in Central and Eastern Europe uh, keep on wondering is what is actually the official U.S policy. And um, this is one that is really hard to answer because we have presidential rhetoric. We have some of these policy moves that seem to undermine what uh, the U.S. kind of stated goal is. And that is uh, together with China in uh, that same NSS, we've seen Russia being named also uh, the strategic rival and, and competitor. And then um, to have that as the kind of official stance and, and strategy right? And at the same time, to have the president 
constantly question the value of the NATO alliance or basically commitment to some of these smaller ally states, particularly those that might not be paying the magical, you know, 2% of their uh, GDP for military uh, 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 purposes and, and so on. So this is um, something that uh, we have been left wondering since day one. Now, the the second issue that arises is one that has to do with uh, President Trump's so-called transactionalism. The fact that we have seen time and time again, um, allies and partners all too happy to flatter and oblige the president because they know that this is basically the way that they can extract some sort of favors or basically the, the kind of policy response that they would see as favorable. And this is how we should actually look at what Zelensky did in this case, right? Poroshenko, uh, the, the previous uh, Ukrainian president, was left wondering you, really during those uh 2016 campaign and during the election uh, and and, uh, transition period, what is Donald Trump going to do once he steps into the White House? How is Ukraine going to basically navigate around the United States in order to make sure that there is still U.S. commitment? And this is something that really comes up very clearly now because seemingly, you know, it's, yes, you might go down that way of, of kind of flattery, flattery and, and obliging the president, but is that potentially going to put you in in some sort of, uh, you know, uh, hot water? Uh, are you, uh, you know, by in, in, in getting involved in some of these informal channels, are you opening yourself to this sort of point where Ukraine policy becomes one that's extremely politicized and where uh, essentially, you know, uh, there are certainly calculations now in Kyiv uh, as to who might be in office in 2020 and to what extent does the Ukrainian government actually cozy up to Trump or tries to cooperate with the democratic inquiry and to to what extent, you know, that will have implications down the line given the looming elections. And this is, again, the context that a lot of these allies that are really dependent on USAID and resolve and support for the NATO alliance for and commitment to these smaller democratic states that are increasingly seeing Russian hybrid warfare, uh, particularly in terms of information warfare, in ter- terms of some of these kind of um, gray measures as well, gray, gray zone tactics in a, in a sense, um, that they are having to increasingly deal with additional uncertainty that was already there, as I said, because there is a mismatch between presidential rhetoric and the official policy. But now it's heightened by the fact that the policy that has been conducted through informal channels has put them into the spotlight and under uh, a subject of inquiry by the U.S. Congress. All right. That great answer to a, a, a big question. Now, as I said, you've got to run off. So I just want to take the opportunity to, to thank you for coming to the National Security Podcast and chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And I would love to hear more about the 14th century England, but I'm sure thank that Thank you. Charlie... That would be you and my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so thank you again, Chris. Wonderful. Thanks. Let's quickly get you to your flight. All right. So, Charles, we we mentioned just previously in the discussion that uh, Trump being the populist and there being a loss of faith and trust in America's institution, would that suggest that Trump actually isn't the problem himself, but he is a symptom of a separation of the elite to the governed or a simple loss of trust in American politics and politicians? 
Yes and yes is probably the answer to that. Um, if you – look, the only question I get asked in Australia in one of 5,000 different varieties is, hey, mate, uh, is this a crazy one-off uh, or should we expect more of the same? Which is a slightly different version of the question you've just asked me, Chris. Uh, and my answer generally, this is a crazy one-off uh, just because Trump is a particular and clearly unique individual. The circumstances that led to his election, the 2016 election, uh, both the enormity of the GOP field, uh, the polarizing nature of Hillary Clinton's presidency, um, and the Russian incursions into uh, the domestic processes, that makes it a unique type of election, unlikely to be replicated exactly. But if you think Trump came out of nowhere, you're in for an awful lot of surprises uh, because amongst other things, uh, globalization has worked out well for some and not as well as many others might have hoped. And if we think this is just limited to America, you clearly have not been reading the newspapers because we've seen the rise of populist political candidates within democratic systems across Europe. Um, we've seen it in Asia as well. Uh, so this is not sui generis. He doesn't come out of nowhere, although he is clearly a unique figure in history as Henry Kissinger recently stated. And so he has exacerbated and perhaps even accelerated some of those tendencies. Now, your question – sorry, I do a lot of throat clearing. I'm a historian by nature uh, – was what this means for trust in institutions. Uh, and I would say it means a couple of different things. So first of all, democratic government, uh, small r, republican government cannot exist without a baseline level of trust. Uh, that's how self-government works. Um, it also is predicated upon restraint. Uh, that's why the American system at least is built on institutionalized restraints, checks and balances. But also uh, it is based on restraint by individuals choosing not to pursue the maximal ends of their power objectives. Now. We can have a great uh, historical conversation about where that's more true, where that's less true. But what we are seeing is in fact we're living through a real-time experiment about when you remove restraint uh, from an individual who sits atop the system and as Grana laid out, has enormous powers that accrue to them as commander-in-chief uh, and in the foreign policy and national security realm, much less powers within the domestic realm. But when you remove that sense of restraint, what is the effect? on the institutions and the functioning of democracy. And I would say it's mixed. Uh, so on the one hand, several of our institutions uh, have held up much better uh, than people expected that they might under assault, I would say, uh, the media, the free press. Um, we are now seeing uh, individuals, officers who have sworn an oath to protect the constitution doing their duty not to an individual, that's not how the system is predicated, but to the constitution. Not judging the president for that, but simply saying factually when under subpoena by the Congress what has happened. Uh, so I think that's been pretty good. Um, but you have also seen the undermining of some of our norms uh, and values. And the question is what are the long-term effects when you begin to take that away, when you begin to stop having restraint within certain parameters of what is allowable within political discourse. That's more worrying to me. Uh, the other thing that I would say on this, and again, uh, 
this is not intended to be particularly partisan, but I'm sure it will be viewed as such. Uh, that's the nature of these things. Uh, is when we talk about institutions, um, there are nonpartisan institutions, right? Bureaucrats are nonpartisan. The military is nonpartisan. The intelligence community is nonpartisan. Uh, it's not true at the top of the intelligence community. Perhaps it's not true at the top of the bureaucracies, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense. It's true all the way across the board on the military. They are nonpartisan. Uh, and yet what we've seen is they have been dragged into partisan mud fights, principally by the President of the United States. Would you say that uh, we saw an example of that just in the last day or so where we have seen the, resign or the forced resignation of the Secretary of the Navy in relation to the pardoning of convictions of war crimes? Is this an example of Trump politicizing the bureaucracy and even the military or is this just an element of, of Trump's, er Trump's erratic form of governance? Yeah, I don't think it's partisanship because the man whose resignation he just demanded was appointed by him. Uh, the same thing happened with Jim Mattis as Secretary of Defense. The same thing happened through a slew of appointees who have had uh, their resignations tendered or really demanded. So it's not partisanship, but it is politicization of the process. Now, certain we have to separate what's normal and what's wholly abnormal. It's normal that the president gets the appointees that he or she wants in our system and can dismiss them. Uh, well, it is abnormal for a president to intervene so directly into the military justice system. Uh, having had a long affiliation uh, with the U.S. military, with the U.S. Navy, I would say that uh, the conduct of civilian military relations, the importance of keeping a dividing line uh, between those, that it is a nonpartisan institution, the U.S. military, they are the armed servants of a democratically elected government, they cannot ever be seen to be a praetorian guard, right, that goes with one party or the other. So elements of that kind of turbocharging this have had an effect and are having an effect. And in fact, what you saw on the resignation letter of the Secretary of the Navy was it was time for him to step down and or it had been demanded that he step down because he did not agree with the president about what was conducive to the conduct of good order and discipline within the military. So uh, yes, I think you see the politicization of the military, which is really harmful in the long term because consistently when you look at different institutions within American society, be it the press, uh, be it um, the Congress, be, you know, all, both of them get relatively low marks, the military has had an unimpeachable to coin a phrase, uh, reputation that's seen as nonpartisan and gets high accolades uh, for the service, for the sacrifices uh, that its members have undertaken by both Republican, Democrat, and independents alike. It's just an American institution that's venerated. Um, this has the potential to politicize that and that I think is quite dangerous. Do you think that this puts a little bit more pressure on someone like Jim Mattis to actually speak out or do you think that he is doing the right thing and actually keeping his mouth shut in terms of speaking out against a sitting president. You know, Jim Mattis has made his own decision about what he is going to say and not say uh, for this. Uh, I will note that you asked the question earlier uh, in the podcast about what would shift uh, Republican senators. And the answer is I actually don't know. Uh, I'm not sure anyone could give you the answer now. Uh, but also note uh, that for the most part, uh, senior uh, members and generally venerated members 
have not critiqued uh, the president or not critiqued it in explicit and blunt terms. Whether or not they did, if they did, that would move the dial. Um, I, I don't know, but we don't have any evidence of them doing it, so it's hard to judge mm -hmm. that. What, what does a process like impeachment do to the government as a whole in terms of policymaking? And because we're the national security podcast, in terms of national security policymaking, especially given the relevance to this impeachment process? Yeah. So again, we've laid this out about how the process works, right? Uh, that articles of impeachment, which have not yet been voted, uh, right? So what you were hearing now, what we saw last week all over the news was the Intelligence Committee of the House of Representatives. The next step that will happen is the Judiciary Committee, which is um, by precedent, the home of the uh, movers who draft the articles of impeachment will draft them. And then it goes to the floor of the House of Representatives for a vote on those articles of impeachment. Uh, traditionally, that doesn't mean that it will be repeated, uh, but there's no really tinkering with what the Judiciary Committee comes out with. You vote up or down. Not all of them will necessarily be approved. Uh, in fact, the last time we had an impeachment, uh, Bill Clinton's, there were four articles of impeachment voted out of the Judiciary Committee, but only two of them received a majority vote. Okay, So once that happens, it gets kicked over to the Senate for a political trial, which is a fascinating thing in and of itself because what exactly is a political trial? Well, the answer is it is whatever the Senate determines it to be. They are judge and jury, both about what standard they're judging by and what evidence they even um, accept into hearing for this. Uh, and that all is to say uh, that as this goes, because this is such an all-consuming process, uh, the bandwidth, the political bandwidth of the United States is going to shrink and be riveted around this. Uh, the day-to-day -day functioning of the U.S. government will not stop uh, by any way, shape, or form. Uh, we won't stop having our ships uh, uh, deployed around the world, nor less our men and our women. We won't even stop uh, the trade and free flow of goods. But I would imagine uh, that Debate about other issues that are of enormous consequence, such about such as whether or not the United States and Mexico and Canada are going to sign NAFTA version 2.0, uh, UMSICA, that's the horrible acronym <laughs> that's given, U.S.-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement. Uh, I don't think you're going to get a vote on that when this comes to the fore. Uh, so the point is that for the duration of the process, the political bandwidth to undertake major actions is really going to narrow and shrink. Um, how that will affect the conduct, you know, Trump is his own person. So Bill Clinton's strategy was during his impeachment, he wanted to represent that this was a partisan, uh, you know, wild goose chase. And he, unlike his Republican opponents in the House and the Senate, was actually focused on the business of governing. So he really got to work and made a clear statement that that's what he was doing. We've seen President Trump on his Twitter uh, I do not think uh, that he is going to suddenly pivot to doing the work of governing to try to make the point that this is a fool's errand. You'll see him, I would imagine, fully engage, perhaps even live tweeting out as the hearings go forward. And so how should, how should America's allies and partners, especially in the Indo-Pacific, be thinking about this situation and when they're looking at America and they're, they're looking at a government that is rather inwardly focused, how should we be navigating this situation and planning for the future? 
on the surface of it, uh, there's very not very much for Australia or for other nations to do to navigate this because it's a wholly domestic internal process that the United States is going to go through. Uh, so how should you navigate it? Uh, you should turn on the television and watch it because this is a democratic process playing out. And this is how the democratic system is intended to operate. Uh, as things stand now, he will, I would say, almost 100 percent be impeached. Well, impeached again is the House of Representatives moving the articles, right? Simple majority and the Dems have a majority. I'd say it's a close to a foregone conclusion, although there is no such thing in sports or in politics. Uh, if the vote were held today, he would probably be acquitted as well. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, watching and observing that, I think, um, will be critical. The interesting thing, though, is, of course, because we're in an election year, this just adds fuel to the fire of the crazy uh, – machine that is American politics as it gears up into real high um, act. The, the thing, though, I, I would note uh, for allies uh, out here in the region is, as I noted, the functioning of the U.S. government from a security perspective does not stop. Men and women who are stationed abroad do not get recalled. Uh, they do not necessarily get on put on high alert. Uh, we actually do steady state uh, as we go through this. Well, it's it's a very complicated issue, but it's it's a very important issue, especially for US partners in the region when they look at not only a government that is spending a lot of time and effort focusing it on itself when we are at a time of heightened geopolitical tensions. It's also a little bit concerning that uh, the leader of our main ally, our main security ally, is forming foreign policy for his own political purposes. And it's it's quite disconcerting to watch these issues. And I would say that that's why one of the reasons why this impeachment process or this impeachment inquiry is gaining such interest around the world because it actually involves the world as well. So Dr. Charles Adele, thank you very much for coming in and speaking to us on the National Security Podcast and going through what is a very complex issue. Chris, thanks very much for having the two of us on. It was a real uh, pleasure to speak with you here today. And a big thanks to Dr. Charles Udell from the United States Studies Centre at University of Sydney. And thank you to his colleague, Dr. Varana Gurgic, for coming in and chatting to us on the National Security Podcast. It's something that's all over our news every day that can be quite grinding and gruelling to pay close attention to, but there is no shortage of importance attached to this issue, not only for the US, but also for its uh, partners and allies throughout the region. I'm sure we'll be hearing about this issue all the way past the 2020 elections, and it's going to be something that we learn about in classes and chat about in think tanks for a long time to come. If you have any thoughts or questions or comments on this issue, feel free to hit us up. You can get in touch with us via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or you can go old school and drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. And also, while you're listening, we would very much appreciate a five-star rating if you think we deserve it on whatever platform you pod with. And also let us know any suggestions for future podcasts or issues that you're keen to listen in on. And thanks very much for listening to this edition of the National Security Podcast. We look forward to chatting to you on the next one.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 